Howdy, y'all. Welcome back to the Naked Security Podcast. My name is Kimberly Trung, and to my virtual left, I've got Doug Ameth. Howdy. Episode 10, and you can't spell tenure without 10. I believe that's where the word tenure comes from, and that means we can't be fired. So congratulations, everyone. (laughs) We did it. Yay, we're not going to be fired. And Paul Ducklin, to my virtual right. I am not going to be lured into saying the word howdy other than in the context of saying that I'm not going to say it. So I shall just satisfy (laughs) you by saying hello. Well, tricked you. You said howdy anyway. Got him. (laughs) It had air quotes around it. I've got to be fierce about this. It had air quotes around it. Doesn't count. Too late. Can't take it back. Can't take it back. It's too late. It's It's too late. We moved on. We're now on to the teaser of the oh no of the week and the oh no of the week the only thing i'm gonna say is butterfly in the sky i can go twice as high love it really good (laughs) what are the headlines okay we're gonna talk about how to steal photos off someone's iphone from across the street it is a little bit complicated and if you've patched good for you german divers find the enigma crypto machine on the seabed that's a great story and vishing criminals let rip with not one, but two scams at once. But first, fun fact, there's only one letter that doesn't appear in any U.S. state name. And every Scrabble player knows the answer to that question already. Kim, any guesses? I'm going to guess. I'll give you a clue. It's going to be J, X, Z, or Q, isn't it? Think of your Scrabble tiles. I'm going to guess, um, I'm going to guess Q. Got it. Nailed it. I'll be honest. I found the cue by going, okay, Alabama, that's A and B, Connecticut, Delaware. Oh, that's D and E. And then I struggled for a little bit with F until I thought of Florida. Um, And then I got to the end and I knew Arizona was coming, uh, which has both A and Z in it. And so I did... I expected it was Q, but I thought I'd better check because Doug has this way of being a little bit tricky. However, my reverse question to Doug, and I don't think he's got the answer yet, is one and only one U.S. state, as far as I know, has a name that is plural. Arkansas. (laughs) Arkansas. Arkansas and so Kansas would be plural as well then, would it? And Texas. And Texas. I hadn't thought of that. Massachusetts. Um, no, I think that the correct answer is Rhode Island and Providence Plantations. <gasps> That's the full name. It is indeed. Got us. <laughs> We're learning a lot this week already. Let's learn about um, this article, How to Steal Photos Off Someone's iPhone from Across the Street. So imagine, if you will, an attack that can take over a currently running app on a victim's phone, unsandbox it from inside the kernel, Access the, let's say, the camera directory in this instance, steal the latest photo, and then exfiltrate it. And all is a zero-click attack and without alerting the victim. And from what I understand, Paul, he could have set this up to do anything else. It doesn't have to actually steal a photo. It could have stolen something else. There's a lot to unpack here, and a lot of work went into this exploit, did it not, Paul? Yes, this was... Uh, by uh, by a well-known cybersecurity researcher called Ian Beer, who works for Google in their Project Zero team, and uh, you know he he this took him something like six months to get this. He he found a bug in the kernel uh, that he reported to Apple, and Apple fixed. So the the core thing behind this bug, fortunately, was patched. Uh, I think when 
uh, iOS 13.5 came out. And you'll know if you have that update because it's the one that came out to support Apple's privacy-conscious track-and-trace stuff for coronavirus apps. Uh, And my understanding from Ian himself is that this bug wasn't present isn't present before iOS 13 so if like me you have an old iPhone that's still supported but has iOS 12 then you're okay but he figured you know what that this is a bug in the kernel I can get it to do something bad it did need patching but it would be an interesting exercise and you know it, it's fortunate that he had the time and the will to do this it'll be an interesting exercise to see just how fruitless it might be to try and turn this into something that worked. And because he was successful, a lot of people go, oh, well, what were you wasting your time for? It was fixed. You should move on. His goal was, I guess, because you know he's, he's paid by Google to do this and he can take the time to do this work. I thought his, his takeaway from the paper was very important. He said that what you should be looking at is that this is a case that one guy did this like in his bedroom on his own. It may have taken six months, but it was perfectly possible to put all the pieces together. Uh, nice alliteration there. It was a- accidental. <laughs> um, and the takeaway should not be that, well, this is so this bug is so arcane and so surrounded by modern kernel protections in hardware and uh, and, and software that nobody's going to spend six months just to get pictures off my phone because. As we know, there are plenty of people who aren't doing this for good who could come up with the kind of money needed to bankroll this. Think about that Revil discussion we had a few weeks ago where the crooks dropped a million dollars, if you don't mind, for the next hackers to come along who might just know enough about backup to be able to do more devastating ransomware attacks. So there are people with your worst interests at heart uh, who do have the time and the money to spend on this kind of thing. And that was really his takeaway, that it, it is possible with a little bit of effort, if you're prepared to have a few false starts and then rewind and try again, to take a bug that you kind of think no one's ever going to bother with that and turn it into something quite dangerous. So what did he actually do in a 30,000-word nutshell? Yes. that's uh, <laughs> if, you, if you'd like to read his article, it's great fun, but... Uh, if we can do some self-promotion uh, for nakedsecurity.sophos.com for a moment. We did get people, the article that, that we published on Naked Security, a lot of people said, oh, thanks for this article. It was a great introduction that I read through yours to get a, a, an idea of how it all sits together. And that made understanding Ian's much easier. Um, and at 30,000 words, because there's there's a lot to it, it's actually longer than uh, Charles Dickens's Christmas Carol and longer um, perhaps more in a, a relevant genre, longer than George Orwell's Animal Farm. So it's quite a big read. Hmm. Um, so so to summarise it, if we can, uh, quickly, basically he noticed that there was a kernel function with a name that was kind of interesting to bug researchers. In particular, it mentioned that it implied that it processed data of a form known as TLV, type length value. Basically, that's structured data where the code processing it will have to read. It, it knows, oh, now I'm reading, say, say it were, were an image file. Oh, now I'm reading the header. I need to process the next 12 bytes. Now I'm reading the 
now I'm reading the color palette. I need to read the next 74 bytes. You can see that there's an awful lot of things that can go wrong when you've got code that is trying to parse one of these general file formats and not like read the wrong amount of data and put it in the wrong place and get a buffer overflow. So first he figured that would be interesting to look at. Uh, then he actually found that there was indeed in this type length value parsing function, there was indeed a place where buffer sizes were not checked correctly. So there's a part where this thing can receive data and the data field is supposed to be up to 10 Wi-Fi MAC addresses. They're six bytes each. So it's a buffer that is only 60 bytes in size in the code. But for some reason, the bug in the code was it was actually the length of the incoming data to see if it would fit into 60 bytes that size was checked against the value 1024. So he had nearly a thousand bytes of buffer overflow to play with. Then he figured out a way to use that particular buffer overflow to cause code execution that he'd provided. Then he had to figure out a way, well, I need to trigger this code to be run. And it was actually turned out to be part of what's called AWDL, the Apple Wireless Data Link, I think it stands for. It's Apple's proprietary mesh or ad hoc wireless protocol that's used in AirDrop. So then he had to figure out, well, I have to build myself an Apple compatible uh, uh, AirDrop type sending system, which he did in order. That was the only way he could get the data in remotely. Um, because he, uh, then he had to figure out, because there were some protections anyway, had to figure out how to, not only how to send AWDL packets in the first place, he knew how to make bad ones, but he had to make them bad in a, in a way that wasn't detected by the security precautions that were already in place. Then he had to figure out, okay, now I need to find a wireless adapter that I can plug into my little portable Raspberry Pi that will actually has the, the software chops to be able to mount this attack in the first place. Um, so, and that took him, he had to try 13 different adapters till he got one that worked. Then he had to figure out, well, I don't want to have to send the person a message saying, hey, turn on airdrop because then it's not a zero click attack, right? You have, to, you have to trick them into doing something and they're gonna go, why is this person asking me to send their file when I don't know who they are? So then he had to figure out a way using Bluetooth, using a second bit of hardware, he had to figure out a way of tricking a phone into turning on the Apple wireless direct link service very briefly for long enough for him to exploit the bug. Um, and then he had to figure out right, how to, implant his malicious code, his implant, into an app that was already running. And as you say, promote it to have superpowers and then use it to go snooping around and get data out and send it back. So the reason that took a long time to say is that it took him an awful long time to work it out. And it wasn't just doing all the little bits. It was getting them so that he could run them in order and that the attack would work seamlessly and automatically. So with what he did and the video he produced, but the fascinating thing is that he knew what he was doing. He'd spent six months working on this. But once he'd done it, in theory, you could provide the tools to somebody else and they wouldn't need any of those skills. They just need the patience and, if you like, the social engineering chops to sit opposite someone in a coffee shop, for example, and not give away that they were doing something naughty.
So I think that's, we had a commenter, I think there was a comment that said something like, yeah, it took him six months, but now it's going to take script kiddies five seconds to replicate that. Is that true? Or if you read all 30,000 words and you understood them and you're not Ian Beer, can you now replicate this relatively easily? Not really. He didn't say you can download this and this is what you do. He explained how you could do it. But, you know, if you wanted to recreate this, well, good luck to you. Then if you were to try and recreate this, it would be a fantastic exercise to help you become a better cybersecurity researcher. So the idea that, well, he's now, he's magically created something that everybody can use at will easily. Well, firstly, this bug was patched, what, back in May 2020. So you should be patched against it now. So actually showing how it works is, is a, would in any case be a, a good indication for people who come next, programmers who come next, not to make the same mistakes. It's a great training exercise for people who want to get really good at cybersecurity. And no, he hasn't He hasn't given you, a, here's a toolkit, you can just go out and do this at will. He, he got onto this bug and other people noticed that the bug had been patched simply by people looking at the fixes Apple had applied. So anybody who wanted to could have done exactly what he did and you can bet your boots if they were cyber criminals, they wouldn't be giving it to script kiddies. They'd be, you know, recruiting affiliates mm-hmm. or selling it quietly on the dark web or something like that. He found this because he got an idea from a kernel variable name of where to start looking. Yeah. And that information was kind of available to anybody. And the fact that this bug existed, he found the bug and reported it. But once it had been patched, other people actually decompiled the patch and figured out where the roughly where the bug was on that basis. So that is a problem in cybersecurity that when you go and when, when you play a defensive card, then the crooks can take that defensive card and analyze it to use for their next sort of offensive tool. And then the good news of that is you can take that offensive tool and work out how you're going to defend against it. And so the cat and mouse game progresses. So as far as what people can do to protect themselves against exploits like these, we covered patch early, patch often. What else can they do? Because this requ- this particular exploit, and this is not generally going to be true, but it's just an indicator of, of why less is more when it comes to features on your mobile phone. This exploit requires the victim to have airdrop temporarily enabled. And it turns out that in order for AirDrop to be able to give you a notification that somebody's trying to send you something, would you like to turn it on? There's a second channel of communication using Bluetooth, which is where a nearby device can advertise to yours saying, hey, I'm interested in sending something. And your device will silently turn on the low level parts of AirDrop to see if it is somebody that you actually want to communicate with. And so in this case, if you turn off Bluetooth when you're not using it, then that limits the ability to exploit this bug. So that's not a general fix, turn off Bluetooth when you're not using it, but it's a great reminder that the more fancy communications features you leave on all the time on your phone, the more exposed you're likely to be. So simply put, turn off Bluetooth when you don't need it because it would have prevented this attack and it'll protect you from a whole load of other potential privacy violations that you, you things that you don't really need to do. Uh, the next thing is, of course, the very point that Ian Beer himself made is 
Never assume that because a bug sounds hard that nobody's ever going to bother. And if you don't believe EMB is saying it, then if you've ever used the Firefox browser, you'll know that every four weeks when they put out an update, they've often found some potential memory management, e.g. buffer overflow problems. And even if they don't think they could be exploited, they always say, we have to assume that with sufficient time and effort, somebody could figure a way to turn this into a remote code execution exploit. So being quite candid that even small bugs can have very large consequences and don't assume otherwise. And the last advice we have, this isn't for everybody, it's for people who are programmers. It's the problem here, the core bug, was the fact that there was a place where a buffer, a memory block that was limited to just 60 bytes was only checked for size in a generic way. Like, okay, if it's more than 1,024 bytes coming in, that's definitely wrong. But there was no specific check. And Ian Beer kind of assumes or invites people to assume quite reasonably in this paper that one of the problems is, particularly in kernel code, is that you're inclined to go, okay, well, this data came from somewhere else inside the operating system. I'm going to trust it because if I do it, if I check things like buffer lengths again in a performance critical part of the code, e.g. wireless, well, I'm just, it's like my code won't perform very well. Basically, there's never a good time not to check for bad data. And that's perhaps the biggest takeaway for any programmer. If the buffer length checks had been done properly, even if they ended up being done three or four times instead of once or twice, this bug could not have happened in the first place. So a little caution goes an awful long way. How to steal photos off someone's iPhone from across the street? Nakedsecurity.sophos.com. All right, at this point in the podcast, we usually highlight an unusual comment that we get in our system. I would like to actually spotlight an unusual comment that I personally made last week. Last week, I said the following. November 30th was officially Computer Security Day, so let's talk about wireless fidelity. And it turns out that Wi-Fi does not, in fact, stand for wireless fidelity. Well, not exactly. Thank you to our colleague Barbara Hudson for bringing this to my attention. According to a 2005 article by Boing Boing's Cory Doctorow, founding member of the Wi-Fi Alliance, Phil Bellinger, insists that Wi-Fi isn't an acronym and means nothing. As the legend goes, the Wi-Fi wow. Alliance, which started out as the Wireless Ethernet Compatibility Alliance, needed a catchier name for the new technology than IEEE 802.11b direct sequence, <laughs> <laughs> believe it or not. So they hired a branding firm, which came up with Wi-Fi. Says Bellinger, the only reason that you hear anything about wireless fidelity is some of my colleagues in the group were afraid. They didn't understand branding or marketing. They could not imagine using the name Wi-Fi without having some sort of literal explanation. So we compromised and agreed to include the tagline, the standard for wireless fidelity, along with the name. If you decompose the tagline, it falls apart very quickly. The standard? The Wi-Fi Alliance has always been very careful to stay out of inventing standards. The standard of interest is IEEE 802.11. The Wi-Fi Alliance focuses on interoperability certification and branding. It does not invent standards. So Wi-Fi could never be a standard and wireless fidelity, what does that mean? Nothing. It was a clumsy attempt to come up with two words that matched Y and Phi. That's it. Well, that was the clumsiest explanation 
for a perfectly reasonable inference from the name <laughs> that I've ever heard. Yep. And if you want to call it wireless fidelity, I think you have every right to do so since they clearly planned to kind of piggyback on the name Hi-Fi. Yep, I agree. So, <clears throat> wow. That being said... And that that's why technical people are often terrible writers, mm -hmm. because they just can't imagine that anyone else could not possibly ha read their mind retrospectively. But there you go. That being said, it is 2020, and I'd, I'd appreciate it if you would give me the opportunity to formally apologize publicly for my mistake last week. I don't want to be canceled because of this. So if you'll indulge me quickly. Thank you for coming. I'd like to start out by apologizing to our listeners. You've placed your trust in me and I failed you. I'd like to apologize to my colleagues, especially Kim and Paul. I've besmirched the Sophos name with my reckless behavior. And I'd like to apologize to my family, my wife, Doug Arisha, my sons, Doug Jr. and Doug Jr. Jr. and my daughter, Doug Arisha Jr. Although our family is perfectly named, I've still managed to make a mockery of our family name. And for that, I'm eternally sorry. Thank you. We have a George Foreman situation here. Glad we sorted that out. <laughs> Thank you, Doug. And you are forgiven. Thank you. On behalf of everyone, I do not cancel you. I reinstate you. <sighs> and you're on social media a lot, so I appreciate that. Coming from you, that means a lot, Kim. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, on to our next story. This is an interesting one. Talk about uh, lost treasures at the bottom of the sea. The environmental group, the WWF, um, known to some of us as the World Wildlife Fund or the Worldwide Fund for Nature. Um, they are an international non-governmental organization and uh, they do their sweeps of the sea and they look for ghost nets, which are basically leftover fishing nets from the fishing industry that get snagged onto things at the bottom of the ocean. Well... This time when they did their sweep, they found a ghost net, but it was snagged onto not your typical uh, bottom of the sea item like rocks or submerged tree trunks. This time it was snagged onto an Enigma cipher machine from World War II. Duck, tell us a little bit more about how this came to be and why this is such an interesting find. Well, my understanding, Kimberly, is that... Uh the the one of the divers i think the, is that like the, the the chief diver is a chap called florian huber uh he was on the boat and you know one of his colleagues surfaced and said oh we found we found the net it's weird it's slagged, snagged on what looks like an old typewriter rusted typewriter down there <laughs> and uh now what florian huber knew uh well because of where they were they were in a place called uh gelting bay or I think it's uh, Gel Geltingerbucht, the Bight of Gelting, uh, which is on the Baltic side of the, the mainland Europe sticky-outy bit of Denmark, just, just by Flensburg, just south of the Danish border. And if you know your Second World War history, you will know that that was considered a safe haven by the Nazis for their for naval vessels, because obviously it was on on Nazi-controlled side, not not opening onto the North Sea, so it was where, particularly in Gelting Bay, it was where things like U-boats, German submarines, uh, rested when they weren't being used or when they were being repaired, and uh, 
the day before the Nazis surrendered, they had this they had this thing called Operation Rainbow, where if if naval commanders received a signal with the secret code word in it, Rainbow, they would scuttle their vessels because obviously the the Nazis figured, well, we we've kind of we've been defeated, it's all over, bar the shouting, but we don't want the Allies seeing how we did it. We don't want them getting our technology. And so nearly nearly fifty U-boats were apparently scuttled in this very area. So the chief diver knew that when, when the guy said there's an old typewriter, he figured, no, it's not going to be a typewriter. Mm. There must be dozens because m- many submarines had two Enigma machines, one for today's settings and one preset for tomorrow's settings because they changed the, the cipher settings every day. So around about midnight, it was easy to make mistakes. So many of them had two. And if they scuttled the 40-something vessels, there are probably 80 Enigmata wow. sitting down there on the seabed. So they went and retrieved it. There's a picture of of, of the of a, a, a diver. I think it's Florin Huber himself, like on the seabed with this, and it looks like a rusty typewriter. But if you've ever been to somewhere like Bletchley Park or the I think the Science Museum in London's got one, an actual Enigma machine. When you see it, it even though it's bulging with rust, it's obvious that that's what it is. And they brought it up, and they have donated it to the archaeological people in the state of Schleswig-Holstein, who've said, we're planning to restore it. However, to restore it apparently has to go back underwater for at least a year, and it will be flushed out gently with distilled water, which will steadily dissolve all the all the corrosion salts, and they're going to see what's left of it. So quite a fascinating story, and kind of an indication that, you know, we have that problem these days, right? I, I need to I need to get rid of this hard drive. It's full of data. It wasn't encrypted. <laughs> like throw it in the if ocean. I throw it in the sea, <laughs> yeah, it'll be fine. Well, no, because seventy-five years later, somebody trying to do the world an environmental service and get rid of these jolly rogue gill nets might f- bring up your hard disk and go, hey, it's full of lime wires. Find out what's on it. <laughs> so yeah, it's um, some things are quite hard to destroy. So it's a it's a, obviously a very tragic part of history, but nevertheless, a sort of uh, lest we forget part of it. So that's why the plan is to restore this. Yeah. Fun Sophos fact, the intercept control room at Bletchley Park, where they would intercept and decrypt these messages, is how we named the product Intercept X, because of largely because of the um, CryptoGuard feature, which rolls back uh, encryption events in I uh, did not know that. ransomware attacks. Yep. So I have, because I was on the team that helped build that, I have a picture right over here of the intercept control room that was given to me. Oh, Bletchley Park. I love that. You know you can visit. It's uh, If you're interested in the history of cryptography, then it's a kind of pilgrimage. I don't uh, know if I'm allowed in your country yet, but once <laughs> I am. Yeah, once we're able to, I'd love to go. I think you're allowed in, and then you have to wait two weeks and then leave. I don't know. No, I, <laughs> you may not. Yeah, I know what you mean. But yeah, it is. You can make. I don't. I. I. I don't know whether it's open. I'd love course, to get stuck all, there. Believe me. It's all. It's all. You know what's amazing when you go there is just how terribly shabby the conditions were that the people worked in so you think well they mm-hmm. didn't go to the front and they you know they weren't they weren't flying airplanes and being shot at but the the working conditions were absolutely dreadful because they had something like 10,000 people crammed into these dank and 
ill, you know, cheaply put together huts, mm. trying to do the most amazingly complicated intellectual work. That when when Tommy Flowers, the, the great British computer engineer, they, he kind of invented the first digital computer, although the, the Americans now take credit for it because Sir Winston Churchill, in one of his uh, <laughs> less inspired moves after the war, demanded that that we keep completely quiet about the fact that we built these this computer called the Colossus. Eventually, there were ten of them. They they had them running at Bletchley Park, and they, they weren't for the Enigma. They cracked a, uh, the Lorentz cipher machine, and they were electronic valve operated electronic digital computers. They needed thirty five kilowatts of power each, and they were running in these rooms that basically leaked when it rained. Wow. And apparently, they just told the operators most of of whom, of course, were women because the blokes were off fighting. They just said to them, oh, you have to wear Wellington boots to work. <laughs> and the reason was to prevent them being electrocuted. <laughs> oh, I mean, great. <laughs> that's the kind of conditions that they laboured under. It, it's quite, it's quite, it's, uh, quite a confronting experience to go there, believe it or not. And fortunately, the Nazis never figured it out. Ooh. They never figured out that that was the, that was the centre of all the encryption stuff that isn't it funny that there are lots of motorcycles always going to and from this place? Now it's just on the outskirts of a, of a big of a big town called Milton Keynes, which is a new town built after the war. At the time, it was apparently chosen because it was literally in the middle of nowhere. I love this history lesson, Duck. Thank you so much. Ugh, that sounds wild. I'll never complain about my working conditions ever again. <laughs> if you want to check out that story, you can head on over to nakedscary.sophos.com. It's called German Divers Find Enigma Crypto Machine on Seabed. All right, let's talk about vishing. Paul, you received a rare and possibly priceless voicemail, kind of like people who collect irregular stamps. So hold on to that one. <laughs> yes, <laughs> maybe worth millions someday. So you got two voicemail phishing or vishing attacks fused into a single voicemail message, right? Yes. I guess, in a way, this story is not—it's not very exciting, but it was certainly interesting to me. I got a voicemail message, you know, bing, dial one two one to pick up your voicemail. So I thought, I bet it's a scam. Although it came from a, U a regular UK landline, like they all do, because they're coming through some local voice over internet service, I guess. And I listened to the message and. Now, as far as I know, the, the way these scammers work these days is they don't cold call every person and try and see who's the likely victims. They get people essentially to pre-select themselves as not having spotted it's a scam by using an automated voice. And my understanding is they detect if you answer the phone, then they know they figure out, oh, well, it's a human and you've stopped speaking. So they the message starts. Otherwise, they basically wait for the beep. And obviously, their software had gone haywire here because the message, the voicemail message, suddenly cuts in the middle, and there's this there's this female voice speaking in a very serious, neutral sort of Southeast Midlands received pronunciation, whatever you call it, you know, sort of BBC English, speaking very properly about the three hundred and fifty pounds charged to the Visa card associated with my Amazon account, and so it goes on. And press one to speak to the Amazon fraud team. A likely story. Uh, and I thought, oh, okay, one of those. And then because the voicemail hadn't finished, if, if they'd call me, I would have just hung up. But because the, the voicemail message hadn't said that's the end of the message, I thought, hang on, 
I wonder what happens after the silence. So I listened on for a few seconds and I presume that their, their playback had got some kind of like almost like a buffer overflow weirdness that it knew it had to play so many seconds of message, but it kind of, it, had, it didn't take into account the stuff it had already played. And suddenly a new message appeared, same crooks, same call, same equipment. And suddenly there's a man speaking in like standard American English and he's not serious at all. He's congratulations. <laughs> Your loan's been approved. If you still need the 10,000 and like a completely different vishing scam that they'd, they'd released. And then that message cut off and that was the end of it. So I got the end of one and the beginning of, a num- of another. And although that doesn't sound very interesting, I suppose I was maybe naively thinking before, well, these crooks, you know, these guys are probably focusing on the UK and those guys are probably focusing on Germany and there's another group who are doing the US at the moment. Clearly not. This is an automated system that is supposed to know, well, when I'm dialing the UK numbers, I'm going to be talking in pound sterling and I'm going to be talking seriously and I'm going to be talking fraud today. But when I'm talking to an American number, I'm going to have this upbeat guy saying, well done, your loan's approved. Their robot got out of sync, so I heard a bit of two scams at once. A priceless, bit of an eye-opener. irregular stamp of a voicemail that you should hold on to forever. My, so- my voicemail service only keeps messages for seven days, <sighs> rightly assuming that... that, that <laughs> what a shame. Uh, <laughs> You're going to have to they- keep working until you die now. You could have retired on that. <laughs> I did write it down on a piece of paper that's, so I okay. could type that's it probably, into the That's got to be worth something. So I could, <laughs> I, could just, I could just get some voice. Maybe worth 20 bucks or something. I, just, I could make some voice simulation software and recreate it. Yeah. Uh, and that's the other problem, right? That the, the crooks can, fortunately in this case, their script was written by someone who wasn't very good at English. So you get this very plummy voice making the kind of grammatical mistakes that sound much worse because of the, because of the plummy accent. It just sounds kind of absurd. And so that was a bit of a giveaway. But if they get the script right, it means that... You know, that that problem when you get the cold call and it's call center noise and you know that it's some boiler room, high pressure cell, you know that you just go, I'm not speaking to you. Click. That it doesn't sound like that. That if they got the script right, the voice would have sounded like any professional, legitimate company's automated messaging service. This goes back to uh, Doug's pitch of how he wanted to enter the industry and become uh, an editor. (laughs) For uh, cyber criminals. Yep. Remember how you? It's, yes. You're going to improve still, the grammar and the spelling, and uh, yeah, I still <laughs> hypothetically stand by that idea. So, contact me, Stips at Sophos.com. <laughs> so we have advice in this uh, in this article. That's it's pretty standard boilerplate. Don't reply. Contact the company to make sure they're actually trying to contact you. But there is an interesting. There's always an interesting discussion here, Paul. And I think one of the commenters made it like. I like to get these guys on the phone and waste their time and kind of jab at them a little bit or talk to them for a little bit. But you you had advice that was like you should right you should not you should not talk to these scammers and string them along. That is my opinion. I don't think you do yourself any favors by stringing these guys along and telling them a pack of lies in return. I'm not going to judge you if you do. I mean, it is quite interesting when people do this to see how these guys operate. What worries me about doing it is that you already, if you're going to do it, you already know you're speaking to a criminal. Like the best thing that can come out of it for you is nothing. But remember, these guys have already contacted you. 
They almost certainly, if they're working with stolen data or illegally acquired database, they know who you are and they know where you live. And if you listen to some of the recordings that people have made when baiting these guys, you will see that there are plenty of criminals amongst these people in these call centers who are deeply vindictive and can be very, very aggressive when they're caught out. So why would you want to risk being, you know, a, a, a potential victim of their vengeance if you assume that they already know your phone number, they probably know your email address, they might know your home address, you know, depending on how they came by that data, if they're not just working off, let's try every single phone number in the country, but they're actually working off a database they bought from a data breach, they could know an awful lot more about you than you think. And if you wind them up the wrong way, they might decide that it's time to pay you back. So my advice is simply don't buy, don't try, don't reply. Hang up, get out of there. You're just wasting your time playing with them. I'm with you, Duck. I mean, whenever I get these scammy calls, I get these vishing calls all the time. I didn't get gifted like you did with two for one um, with two different Keep accents. Keep it if you get it. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna keep it, but uh, for me, I don't I don't even want them to know that my phone number is active, right? Like I want to be that phone number where they call repeatedly or whatever, and then they give up. Like I don't want to flag to them that this is an active line that they mm. can keep calling back or trying out. I, that's my paranoia. So I'm with you, Duck. Oh, I don't think that's paranoia. I think that's completely reasonable. These days, I don't say anything. Yeah. And anyone who wants to call me, they know that I do that. So they they say, hi there. And then I recognize their voice and I talk to them. Because I actually want to see what, if I say hello, I know I'm triggering their automated system to leave a message. And so I stand there as quietly as possible to see what's happening. Mm -hmm. And the good news is in the UK, if actually, if you get calls that are like dead calls where the other end doesn't say anything, they're technically, my understanding is they're actually committing a more serious offence than if they phone you up and spout a load of rubbish at you, believe it or not. Um, unfortunately, that makes it complicated because you have to report them in a different way. But so, no, I don't say anything. I figured that that way, that way I'm not giving away any hints. Uh, they don't get to hear my voice, to record my voice, mm -hmm. to, to do any kind of judgment that decides, is yep. this guy a likely victim in future? They just like, they they don't know who I am, so they don't need to find out. End of. Right. I don't even, I used, so back in the day, you still can do this on your voicemail if anybody leaves voicemails anymore, um, other than scammers, but you could be like, you know, you could say your name, hi, Kimberly Trung. And so when you'd call me, it'd say, you have reached a voicemail of Kimberly Trung. I have removed my name from my voicemail, so they can't even confirm that that number belongs to me. Um, I, a hot tip, if you have an iPhone, you can silence unknown callers. So if they're not in your contact list, it will go straight to voicemail. So you don't even have to worry about your phone ringing or picking it up. And that's what I do now. I've gotten so many spam calls that I, I don't even pick up if I don't recognize the number. If it's that important, they'll leave me a voicemail or they'll text me. Yeah, I just have a blank voicemail. But what I used to do is when I had a Mac, the Mac has a beautiful command, which is say, S-A-Y, from the command prompt. You type say, space, and then a sentence and it speaks it for you and you can choose one of the many apple voices and they have mm. this one which called fiona the scottish lady <laughs> and i sorry my accents are terrible um and Nailed so it. i left a voicemail message that that basically gave this greeting saying leave a message and then and 
it's amazing, like, some of the scammers, they'd obviously figure, oh, crikey, we thought we'd be speaking to an English bloke. Yeah. And you could you, you could hear them getting quite confused. <laughs> now, I wasn't baiting them there. And quite often they'd go, oh, and then you just hear click. Like, mm-hmm. it, it, it didn't match their script. Right. But anyone who knew me, they'd just leave a message. Because yeah. I didn't give a name. I just said, or I'd just say, you're welcome to email me. That's better than calling. And I figured that then if you don't know my email address, then you don't bad know luck. Me. Yeah, you don't know yeah. me. I got an email the other day from uh, Yahoo. Someone was trying to log into my account from Poland. It was oh. a two-factor authentication email. So I was like, okay, that's a little concerning. And then yesterday, I got a text message. Was it an actual one or a fake? It was real. Or a fake? It was real. And I, oh, and yes, okay. Yesterday, I got a text message from a number I didn't recognize that was about 50 Guy Fox emojis in a row, but red like the devil. So like the hacker emoji, but red like the devil in f- like 50 in a row. And I was like, oh my God, someone's coming after me. And they're like telegraphing, like, I'm going to hack the hell out of you. And I, I got so nervous and kind of embarrassed because I'm like, I work for security. Like, this is bad. Mm. And then uh, later that night, my buddy from high school was like, sorry, my two-year-old got a hold of my phone. And I was like, your two-year-old texted me 50 50- <laughs> Really concerning emojis that were aggressively hackerish. <laughs> but oh, did you think it was the crooks got really annoyed because they couldn't sim swap? Yeah, them, they're so like, they we're coming after you. Yeah, we're coming to get you. They couldn't get the, the two factor code, so yeah. they decided they'd they'd wind yeah. you up. And I was like, this is yeah. it. This is the end. Right before the holidays. <laughs> well, imagine if it. Imagine if it were the crooks, which is not entirely far fetched. Mm-hmm. Isn't that a good reason not to do scam baiting? Right. The, you, yes. You're not you're not dealing saying, with people yeah. who have yeah any of your any of your interests mm-hmm. at heart. So that's my long winded answer to that comment, Doug. Is basically yeah, knock yourself out if you want to do it. You know, the, the, I don't think there's any law against it. But I just I just like Kimberly, I just don't get the point. The best thing you can get away with is nothing. Just yeah. say no. Just say oh no. Speaking of oh no. It's that time, guys. Oh, yes. It's the oh no of the week. This one comes from the Spiceworks community, one of my favorite communities. Uh, they did a very fun roundup of uh, IT support uh, incidents that have happened to various members in the community. And, I, and we found this one. Here we go. I had a guy complaining that his computer had been hacked. Of course, every time anything strange ever goes wrong, it's been quote unquote hacked. Because whenever he booted the computer opened a program, closed a program, whatever, the entire theme song to Reading Rainbow would play. The computer hadn't been hacked. He had just left it unattended, and someone came by and set every single window sound to play the whole song. I changed the theme and was done. Lesson learned? Never leave a computer unattended, because there are tricksters out there. The end. That's what... These... These tricks these little pranks are some of my favorite things to do when there's unlocked computers but working for sophos has made it really not fun because i don't have the guts to do it when i used to work in the burlington office because you work for a security company mm-hmm. like you don't mm-hmm. want to be that you is don't want to really, be that guy there yeah like when i was a technician at comp usa where i got my Wii in 2006 as we discussed, <laughs> uh we all had our own computer and our own kind of workbenches and guys would leave their um computers unlocked all the time and so we would do stuff like this we changed the system sounds a, a perennial favorite was to take a screenshot of the desktop with all the yes, icons hide course. all the icons then put mm-hmm. the screenshot up 
And then for the ones that got really crafty that would lock their computers, we'd shut the computers down and we'd put a, lit, a Linux live CD in the um, in the CD tray. So every time they booted the computer back up, it would boot into Linux and they couldn't figure out how they was doing this. So I'm a big proponent of, I love a good <laughs> trick like this, but you, you just can't do it at a security company. <laughs> no. Well, you just can't do it because... For example, I, f I forget the exact name of it in the United States, but you, the legislation is almost the same as in the UK. A thing called the Computer Fraud and Misuse Act. Mm -hmm. That too. Um, <laughs> which could send you to prison for, you know, two years or five years or ten years, I think, depending on just how severe you're messing around. So, yeah, don't, don't fill with other people's computers because you wouldn't like them to do it to you. And I guess, Kimberly, the thing about that story is technically that computer had been hacked. Mm -hmm. And it's just a good job it was a chum mm. and not someone who went, you know what, I'll just I'll just stick a keylogger on there so that right. I can Oof. stalk you later Oof. or whatever, <laughs> to put not too fine a point. Also, it. Reading Rainbow could be worse. Yeah. Could be much worse than the theme song to Reading Rainbow, which I find delightful. You know what never occurred to me is that I'd always assume that Windows sound, that any Windows sound, would, you know, they, there'd be a maximum of two or three seconds. Mm -hmm. But I didn't realize, like, it's up to you, right? You might like a two-minute error song <laughs> every time you make a mild mistake or, you know, a, a, a five-minute death metal tune um, from Ping a Death yes. every single time that a new email arrives. And I mean, it never occurred to me that you could have, like, an error tone could could go on for, for seconds or minutes. Yeah, this, this won't surprise anyone but I, I used to I was really cool when I was younger so um, back when computers used to take a long time to boot up my Windows startup sound would be like a two or three minute song because by the time the song was done then you were ready to go because everything was churning and getting booted up so I'd put some cool like you know Megadeth or Megadeth fish, fish. <laughs> you said cool yeah it was super cool yeah mm, cool yeah Megadeth that's just that's commercial metal isn't it does that count that's cool. Ooh, I mean, or is it just that's cold. Duck, duck said that's I grew up, commercial. No, 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 no. I grew up in the indie indie bands, man. That's my thing. I, you know, Listen I grew up in the mean one or two years old suburbs of Minneapolis. That's all we had access to was commercial <laughs> metal. It's a rough, rough childhood, though. Ooh, rough. Ah. Guys, we've reached the end of our episode. If you have enjoyed what you've listened to, why not take 30 seconds and go leave us a five-star review in Apple Podcasts? It literally only takes 30 seconds. I'm not even joking about that. And of course, if you have an Ono oh no of the week or whenever to send to us, you can always hit us up via social media at Naked Security on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And of course, you can email us tips at sophos.com or you can leave an anonymous comment on any of our articles on nakedsecurity.sophos.com. And of course, until next time, stay, stay secure. secure. I answered a voicemail today how I wish I'd thrown it away. A scammer went on and then on and then on. That's a game I just don't want to play. Whoa! Oh, mic drop. I think he just came up with that. Howdy. <laughs>